You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom slash agony. Okay, Well, now you're out of the room, Rick, and you've probably left it running. I'll just do a little uh, my uh, Michael Caine impersonation for you. Okay, from Zulu. Do you remember that film, Zulu? Anyway, this is, this is how it goes. It goes, don't throw that bloody spear at me. Okay, so there's a little, little gift for you when you're editing. Or from uh, the Italian job. You're only supposed to blow the bleeding doors off. There we are. Locked room mystery honoured. see here um my brain is engaged let's see dis disconnect from teenage son accomplished good you got teenage son have you uh two really oh really how old are they uh 19 and 16 boy yeah <laughs> do they do they speak in mumble ground <laughs> and only in mumble ground yeah that there's uh basically they speak in you know fuck you yeah. Fuck that. Yeah. yeah. Fuck that. Yeah. Fuck that. Dad. Yeah. You really pissed me off. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You now, jerk. You, you fucking jerk. You pissed me off. Now you're 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 plosiving. So move that. Oh, I'm a. Yeah. Move the microphone about, to the sorry, side. About sort of um, bearish. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. And, uh, pa- 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 Peter Pecker. Peter Piper picked a peck of pepper, pickled peppers. And you're just dandy. Yeah, okay. Let's see, we've got so six cool. minutes, four seconds. So here we go. <clears throat> Fire away. Okay, this is uh, one of the chapter headings in uh, The Big Over Easy. Um, and uh, these are all in the guise of newspaper uh, newspaper stories, which I do like playing with because it's a wonderful way of condensing text. Um, anyway, this one is called A Locked Room Mystery Honoured. The entire crime-writing fraternity yesterday bade a tearful farewell to the last locked room mystery at a large banquet held in its honour. 
The much-loved conceptual chestnut of mystery fiction for over a century has been unwell for many years and was finally discovered dead at 3.15am last Tuesday. In a glowing tribute, the editor of Amazing Crime Stories declared, From humble beginnings to towering preeminence in the world of mystery, the locked-room plot contrivance will always remain in our hearts. DCI Chimes then gave a glowing eulogy before being interrupted by the shocking news that the locked-room concept had been murdered and in a locked room. The banquet was cancelled and police were investigating. We're speaking with Jasper Ford. He's the author of The Air Affair, Lost in a Good Book, The Well of Lost Plots, and Something Rotten. His new novel is The Big Over Easy. Welcome to the show, Jasper. Thank you. Good to be here. Jasper, I guess the first thing I have to ask you is, do you like the mystery genre or do you hate it? <laughs> um uh, well, I, I, it's, I don't know. I mean, I think um, uh, genres are wonderful things. And uh, you, you, you look at them and you love them. And then you, you look at the things that make them slightly corny. And the things that, that there are so many books, right? There are so many books in any one genre that it is not possible to have a new take every single book. So uh, there are always these funny little sort of plot contrivances that come around again and again um, that I think are just grist for the mill for my kind of books. So I do love the genre, but uh, I also have a sort of um, sort of grudging um, sort of disrespect for sort of plot devices that do tend to come around with startling regularity. Tell us a little bit about this world you've set up. You started, you created it in the Air Affair and went through four books with Thursday Next. Now it's about 20 years later mm. and we're up with uh, DCI Jack Spratt. Tell mm. us about this literary world you've created. Well, this is this is a world which is really sort of separate from the Thursday Next world, I think, in in some ways, but not always. Um, the, the the basic idea here is that n nursery rhyme characters actually live amongst us. Um, you know, perhaps we don't notice them so much because we're, we're disinterested in them, but they do, um, and they don't know their nursery rhyme characters. And of course, because there's so much um, violence in nursery rhymes, you know, that it's full of dismemberment, dis disfigurement, people being boiled alive, people being um, eaten, you know, fattened, children being fattened up and eaten by sort of repulsive old old women living in um, uh, sugar candy houses in the middle of forests, this sort of stuff. And of course, if this is so, then we need a, uh, a nursery crime division, a policing agency, to actually, you know, look after the sort of um, crimes committed by nursery rhyme characters. Tell us a little bit about your character here, D.I. Jack Spratt. Well, Jack Spratt runs the nursery crime division, the NCD. The, the NCD is not a sort of place you'd want to go if you were a career police officer. It's a bit of a dead-end job, and it's where the kind of losers kind of end, end up. Jack Spratt enjoys being there. He doesn't quite know why. He, he likes it, but he does feel that he belongs. And, and he's the one who has to really sort of battle against uh, increasing sort of disinterest um, from, from other police officers and uh, the world in large to help nursery rhyme characters find some sort of justice. In your novel, your new novel, you play a lot with the mystery genre. It's very mm. interesting because you create a very gritty, dirty, low-down world of grimy houses covered with mud, covered with filth, soot, grime. Mm. And it's very realistic on one hand, yet living in this place, you have Humpty Dumpty. You mm. have Rumpelstiltskin. Mm. Tell us about that dissonance that you create between the utterly realistic and mm. the completely unrealistic. What made you choose to do that? Um, I think this is this is something also that goes back to the Thursday Next series. It's it's what I call um, fantasy ordinarification or a sort of domesticity, a sort of fantasy, domestic fantasy, if you like. Um, and what I'm trying to do here is take uh, very bizarre situations and very bizarre characters which are 
clearly completely impossible in our world and make them not only plausible and believable but likely in the world that I create in the uh, in the books so it's important for me to actually write a book which is very recognizable as our world and then place amongst them characters and situations which while impossible within the world I've created actually seem almost likely and actually humdrum and rather boring um, and I think that just makes for a sort of sense of realism you know within the book that maybe it wouldn't have otherwise create a really unique dissonance because on one hand you've created what, what, what does dissonance mean <laughs> well, i don't understand what dissonance means rick tell me help me here help me out <laughs> uh dissonance <laughs> is a, a kind of con- fighting forces on one hand oh right okay. you've, you've got a you've got a, a compelling mystery and it's a mystery that were it not for the main characters being Humpty Dumpty and you know, Jack Spratt and having beanstalks and such hmm. would be something not not out of place in, in like a, a Graham Hurley novel. Oh, I see, right. So you've got that, and you take that mystery totally seriously, hmm. yet you've got all these fantasy aspects. Hmm. How do you, what made you decide to like try to force, you know, chocolate and, and 40 weight order motor oil together in a delicious <laughs> sandwich? Yeah, I think this... <laughs> I mean, fundamentally, what I was trying to write was a, a crime thriller, uh, and, I, and I always enjoyed crime thrillers. Um, and and I think it was without the framework of the crime thriller, then the book can't really work because it is essentially, you know, Humpty Dumpty is off the wall, he's broken, somebody's responsible, and and I like the the, the genre, the crime thriller genre. And that's not to say I can't poke a little bit of you know, fun at, fun at it as well. But um, f- first and foremost, I did want it basically on two levels. Uh, a very complex, you know, um, plotted um, story, you know, about, you know, somebody was responsible. Lots of red herrings, lots of suspects who could have done it, who might have done it, did they or didn't they. But on top of that, I also wanted to have this kind of silliness. And and it's really, yeah, it's, it's like having a, um, I don't know, the best way to describe it. It's like having, you know, a, a sort of sort of hardwood mahogany with a sort of strange sort of rather odd veneer on the top. It's, I don't know, is it like sort of painting an oak panelling with with paint or something? I don't know. It's it's a strange way of, of dealing with it. And I, I don't quite understand it myself, perhaps. But it just makes it, I don't know, just makes it somehow, I don't know. I, obviously, I have to deliver. I mean, I, I think when you write a crime thriller, you do have to deliver. Um, and I always feel that... Uh, you know, you don't want to sort of cheat uh, readers. No matter how sort of daft I make the situations and the characters, it's still, you can still cheat readers out of a good story. And I'm always very, very conscious that I have to deliver not only bizarre characters and bizarre situations, but actually a good story behind it. And and I think that was the point of The Big Over Easy. It's really fun. Now, one thing that I noticed about this novel was that you seem to kind of have it out for the new genre of forensic detection. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about the conflict that develops here <laughs> between what I guess traditional detection and forensic detection because you really yeah. let it let it loose. Yeah, um I, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, how detective fiction has changed. I mean, the, the detective fiction that I really loved was uh, the sort of Agatha Christie and the uh, sort of Ellery Queen, where they were really closer to crossword puzzles. You know, that that was the kind of you know stuff I liked, um, where where the where the author would string you along and then totally deliver something very unexpected at the end, but also have put in enough clues early on in the book for you to go, oh, I should have got it. You know, oh, brilliant. You know, oh, I love that. 
and I kind of like that. But I also I've read uh, a, a few contemporary novels, which are which are less about sort of you know who done it, but more a sort of how they done it, which I think is less interesting to me. And I think uh, I think there's a lot of sort of pathology based. I mean, that's a new genre, basically the pathology based uh, crime thriller. Uh, and I think I, I don't know. I just found them all slightly. I don't know. I just didn't like them as a, as a series. I just I love this sort of idea of a detective who purely through cerebral means, you know, can discover um, who has done the murder. The idea of, you know, dissecting people and, you know, going all into all that sort of science about it, it's all just a bit icky, to be honest. Your novel also includes a lot of interesting um, aspects of... <clears throat> your novel is an interest, is a fascinating... Sorry about this. This is why we have digital editing. Of course. I, I'm of just, course. We'll, just, we'll just go back up a second. <laughs> Okay, you can go now. Your novel is a fascinating commentary on crime in the media. In your novel, the law and order, forces of law and order, shape the investigation to provide an interesting story. Tell us a little bit about why you decided to take this tack. Yes, yes. Well, this this is an interesting thing, and um, and I think there is a blurring of the line between what is entertainment and what is news and what is you know what is crime. And uh, fortunately, in, in the UK, we do actually have, we still have the BBC, um, you know, thank God for that. Uh, and they just deliver news. Now, we also have an independent television uh, station, ITV and Channel 4, uh, which deliver news as entertainment. And there is a huge difference between the two. And, and I think it's um, almost sort of rather sort of offensive in which the way uh, media, you know, if there's some terrible murder, uh, the media turn up in droves. Uh, and this isn't news reporting. You know, this is purient uh, interest, uh, which is being sort of told, we're told it's news, and then we can say to ourselves, oh, it's news, that's why I'm interested, so that's okay, you know, because I'm interested in current events. Hey, you know, I'm a sort of, you know, I'm a Renaissance man. But it isn't. I think it's, you know, it's like news is entertainment. And and I think that's one of the one of the points that I was trying to make in the book, is that um, sooner or later, and I'm not saying this about police, this isn't about a criticism of police, it's, it's a criticism of the media and the way in which they look at things. Um, is that um, sooner or later the media will try and change the you know the way that um, murders are investigated so it makes a better story you know and will try and change and make up things just to make a better story and I think they they do actually some of them some of the worst um, uh, offenders of this actually do sort of change facts to make them into interesting stories. Sure, it's all in a way that it's reported. You can report mm -hmm. something. A, a series of uh, events, or you can report it with a plot. Mm, exactly, um, and this is this is the point in the book um, that uh, that if you, a successful a sort of policeman in this in this book is actually the litmus test of a good of a good investigation is not whether you get a conviction or not; it's whether you're actually published in this amazing crime stories, which is this sort of true life crime uh, ad adventure magazine. Um, and if you can get a, a documentary made of it afterwards, and if perhaps, you know, then you get the movie rights. So there is uh, there is having a bit of fun there at this kind of rather uh, sort of worrying, uh, worrying sort of trend we have at the moment. One of the things that's fascinating here is the way in which you develop the character. You have a kind of a meta underestimation mm. of the main character. Yeah. Not only do the characters underestimate them, but you write it so that the reader does too. Yeah, I think so. Um, this, this is this is something that the my, one of my editors, uh, um, my UK editor, came up with, um, and she was saying, um, and actually it wasn't. It was it was both of them, the US and UK, and um, and they said um, 
because originally I made him a bit of a bit of a loser, and and he sort of really sort of bumbled around and sort of almost came across um, the result by accident. And I thought, no, let's he shouldn't. He should come across as a bit of a loser, but actually he's really switched on. So I think yeah, the reader would underestimate uh, underestimate him, and and everyone else in the story underestimates him as well. And and he he has a lovely line, which is um, you know he is his his uh, Mary Mary his his sergeant says you know how sorry she is, and, and he says don't worry, I've been underestimated before you know and by better people people than you and i I think it's it's a great line because it just it what it shows is that he doesn't care you know he doesn't care what people think of him he just wants to do the job and he's an he's an honest good guy you know i'd like to talk to you about literature as a technology Mm. you seem to take apart different genres and different um aspects of literature take a take literature apart and Break it down into a series of tools. Mm. Tell me about how. Why do you take this approach? It's a very interesting approach. Um, why do I take that approach? It, it is an interesting approach. I mean, I, I whenever I look at a genre, whenever I'm writing, in a particular book in the Thursday Next series, which are much uh, jokes about uh, the the classics that I make jokes about, then it, it's also. About, uh, let's start there again. Um, the Thursday Next series, I have fun not only with the characters and the books, but also with the conventions of story writing. And I, what I'm used to is seeing people have fun with just, you know, ideas and characters. And But I, I want to go actually take it one step further. I'm always looking to take things one step further. And by looking at the way stories are told, you can actually find um, a huge amount of material for, for writing, you know, different ideas and stories. And I think uh, certainly playing with the, the genre in The Big Over Easy, um, there are all sorts of things you can make fun of, which are conventions of mystery storytelling that come round again and again. And I, I don't know, I just, I just find it amusing, to be honest. You know, whether it's, you know, putting Hamlet into the real world or a rage counselling session in Wuthering Heights. Uh, what you're doing with, certainly with, with this kind of fantasy, is I'm really just, uh, uh, I think a lot of the classics are like, you know, very sort of like monolithic, you know, and I think they're very fixed in, in people's heads a lot of the time. Um, and this is this is entirely wrong because, you know, they're great stories. They're not just study texts. And what I'm doing is just allow, I'm just, you know, sort of turning, you know, turning the sort of monolith on its, on its, on its block, allowing you to see just a slightly different aspect of it and and because a lot of the stuff I work with my my sort of primary sources are actually very familiar to people um this is sort of something new and uh, a bit different you know it's like it's like if you've if you've only ever seen your you know your house from one angle you know and then you see it when you're flying in an aircraft you go oh my god look at that you know the tree in the backyard looks so small and yeah well, I never realized you know there was a little hump behind the house it's that kind of thing you, you take something familiar and then you look from a slightly different angle and, and you get a completely new perspective on it and I think really that's what I'm sort of trying to do not only with the Thursday Next series but also with the the uh, the Jack Spratt series is just just look at things from a slightly different light and and people you know seem to appreciate this and you kind of think of things they haven't thought of before Tell us a little bit, how do you see literature as a technology that you can deconstruct into different parts? Plot, character, genre, convention? Hmm. I, you, do you know, I mean, this is, these, are interesting, these are interesting questions, but they're, they're questions I do not ask myself when I'm writing. You know, when you're writing, there is, there is a, lot of, um, there's a lot of writing that I call, I call front of house and back of house, right? Meaning your head. Um, the front of the house is the stuff that you, you kind of, you think up plot, plot ideas and character names and things like that and then there's back of house where you write things down and you don't know why you're doing it it just seems right you know and writing for me um, I, I 
don't give it a huge amount of thought when I'm writing things down. I do things that I think are amusing and interesting and funny and clever. And, and it sort of just sort of comes out that way. Um, I don't actually think of what I'm doing. But when you talk about sort of deconstructing, I, I suppose, yes, I am. I'm taking elements of stories and, and moving them around and shifting them around and everything. But I, I mean, I have to say, I don't really give it a huge amount of, amount of thought to intellectualize it in the manner perhaps you'd like me to. Um, I don't know. Give me a specific example and I can tell you the thought behind it. Uh, perhaps it's better in, rather than in a general way. Well, for example, the piece you read as in the opening where you talk about the locked room mystery being found murdered in a locked, locked room. room. Yeah. I mean, well, it's a loop. It's a little what I'm doing is is there is actually saying there's a, there's a kind of kind of loop there that um that you have this wonderful contrivance which is the locked room contrivance and this goes back to Edgar Allan Poe, which is primary source material for any mystery uh, reader or writer. Um and there was there was an American author whose name uh, I eludes me for the moment who's the king of the locked room mystery. It's it's one of the best things, you know. The person's murdered there in a locked room, you know seemingly impossible crimes um and because it's been used so much i thought well how can we how can we just turn this plot contrivance on its head and how can i have a joke at the plot contrivance's uh, uh expense or um or even to not only in, it, in its expense but um also a sort of almost a salute to it and of course to say okay it's it's now dead and then somebody says okay but the locked room contrivance was found murdered in a locked room so of course the contrivance is not dead at all and this goes for a lot of um you know plot devices in books um that you can you can write books and books and books and books and books and there is still another way of playing with an idea that seems incredibly old in the same way that you know somebody could write tomorrow another really good locked room mystery you know you can't kill these things off they they just carry on going and i think that that's the gag um behind it really but also it's an anthropomorphizing of the idea isn't it because what i'm doing is i'm saying the locked room is that if the locked room idea could be murdered then suddenly i'm giving it a sort of human aspect to it um which is another sort of strange way of looking at something because then it becomes nonsense because how can you lock how can you kill a a plot contrivance, you know, an inside a locked room, but it also asks questions. So, you know, there's an open-ended sort of mystery there already. I, that's the most I can explain about how it, how it works. It just does work. It's a silly gag, but it, I don't know. It's back of house. It just is there. It happens. The other technology that you work with, and this might occur a little bit more in the front of the house, is mm. language itself. Yeah. You use a lot of puns. You make a lot of jokes. The Thursday Next books seem to work more around puns and mm. Jack Spratt seems to have more jokes. I'm wondering is that an evolution in your writing? And tell us a little bit just about what you do with words. What I do with words. Um words are wonderful. Um the way one can use words is just tremendous. The the one the one time I'm uh, when I get uh, over over when I get, when I, when I meet someone who use words beautifully, then I am overawed. It's it's a, a tremendous sign of um of not not great learning, but just a brilliant sort of fizzing sort of intellectual mind, and you know I used to work in the film industry and know a lot of people from a lot of very different sort of you know areas of academic brilliance to nothing at all, and the people who could use language um, was all across the board. I mean, you know, we used to have. Um, uh, you know, sort of carpenters and electricians uh, who were who were sort of um, perhaps you know more described as people less academically well, uh, less academically well achieved, but no less stupid. But just that's what they were doing. Who could use words in the most fantastic way? 
I mean, absolutely brilliant. Best best joke tellers I ever heard were, you know, the, that kind of people. Um, so it's nothing to do with um, one's learning. It's just a way that your mind works. And uh, I love the wordplay. I mean, it's it's just it's tremendous stuff. So it's especially ambiguous workplay wordplay, uh, where it could mean you know, it could mean two things. You know, I uh, often describe as Lola Vavoom as as a as a, an actress of some little talent. And, of course, that can mean two things, can't it? It either means she's got no talent at all or she's uh, got considerable talent. Um, so it, it's things like that, you know, that uh, that I, I, I rather enjoy. And I just hear things and, and put them in and, and I, I don't know, I just love playing with words and making up words and using words in different different ways, you know. As you create these pieces, are they created when you write the, the prose itself or do you collect them for use later? Um, I, I, I often collect things. Um, they kind of stick in my mind. And when I'm writing, it's, I suddenly think, ooh, you know, what did they say the other day? Oh, that's right, I remember that. Yeah, I'll use that. Um, it's, it, it, it is, it's, it's sort of semi, you know, front of house, back of house. Um, I don't know, but when I, often when I'm writing, I just sort of get it all down. Get all, di- I write dialogue first as what they mean rather than what's they what they genuinely mean rather than what's going on underneath the dialogue because of course you know when you write dialogue you've always got to have a sort of subtext to what's going on you know if if the if what they're saying is what they're saying then you know clearly you're in trouble as an author so um i, I kind of like the idea of a, I, I actually write it once and then i write it again and i start you know honing it all and actually add you know try and add a little sort of subtext to it and that's usually when the sort of gags and the wordplay come in one of my favorite gags from your previous novel, Something Rotten, mm. was the language that Thursday Next Child first <laughs> <Right>. spoke. <Yeah. laughs> Tell us a little bit about yeah, this. Yeah, this is um, Lorem Ipsum, which is, um, which is a dummy text used by uh, typesetters. And um, this uh, is sort of Lorem Ipsum Dolores. It basically looks like Latin, but isn't. And this is a g- genuine, actually genuine stuff. Um, and it's, it, it is used by typesetters just so that, because when you, when you set text out, um, you don't actually want to have any English words there because people start reading the words when they should be actually just looking at the layout. Um, and that's what Lorem Ipsum is. And I figure that um, little Friday next, learning to talk, and children, as they do when they learn to talk, gabble a lot and of seeming nonsense. Um, and I thought, well, if he's been spent the last two years living inside fiction, he probably would have picked up some, some sort of bizarre um, traits. And one of these, of course, is, um, is speaking nothing but Lorem Ipsum. It's a really fantastic invention. Now, something rotten was. Is this the end of the Thursday Next series? Uh, no, no, this isn't. No, um, I think what we've done is uh, what we're doing here is uh, pausing a bit uh, just to give her a break and, and me a break, and we'll be coming back to Thursday um, certainly. That writing books about books is, you know, it's almost sort of limitless what I what I can do, um, and you know, books and jokes about sort of conventions of storytelling. So no, we're definitely coming back to her, and you know, we won't leave her for long. Tell us a little bit about writing in a series. Hmm. You do it really well, and you do something in the Thursday Next books. You threw in a science fiction element, time hmm. travel, hmm. and at first it was just there. And I believe you told me when the first book, when you did the first book, that you just threw it in just because you could. Yeah, it ended yeah. up playing a very important part hmm. in the series. Hmm. Now, yeah, in the Jack Spratt book, you also throw in a bit of science fiction as well. And I'm oh, wondering yes. if you're more prepared this time for how it's going to play out? Uh, probably not. Um, I, I don't know. I, I think that the science fiction in, in the Thursday Next book is, is kind of, there's a bit of 
travel science fiction, but also this time travel idea. Um, I think what I was playing with there was the conventions of time traveling, you know, because this is impossible, clearly. Otherwise, there'd be, you know, thousands of tourists at the Sermon of the Mount, wouldn't there? Uh, which there weren't. We know that. And all the great sort of, you know, um, historical moments in history would be crowded with time tourists, wouldn't they? So I don't think it'll ever be invented. But there is a very strict, a very strict sort of grammar to time-travelling stories, you know, that you, you cannot go back in the future and murder your, your grandfather. Um, now, my, my take on this is, why not? Why can't you do it? Well, you wouldn't exist. And you go, well, why wouldn't you? And you go, well, because you don't have a grandfather. I know, but you once had a grandfather, so isn't that enough? So my take on the time travel and the way I treat it in the Thursday Next books is that, you know, it can be possible. You know, you can have these seemingly impossible paradoxes and still carry on as normal, which I kind of enjoy. And, and also, I think what I was doing was taking a very strong narrative device or plot contrivance or whatever you want to look at it and then relegating it to a, a subplot and also giving it a humdrum domesticity that I think time travel should have. It's a bit ho-hum and boring in Thursday's world. If you work in the time industry, it's no big deal. Just, you know, just one of those sort of you know, things you do, like working in the postal service or as a plumber or something. And I think what I was trying to do this with, with The Big Over Easy, because uh, one of the people who works for Jack Spratt down in the Nursery Crime Division is a, someone called Ashley, who is in fact an alien. And it seems, from sort of reading between the lines and various little hints here and there in the book, that aliens have arrived on the planet Earth and are sort of assimilating themselves amongst us um, quite happily, but are terribly ordinary and very boring, and like nothing better to do filing and sort of sit on railway platforms and jot down numbers of trains. Very boring. Uh, people actually aliens and he, he's just arrived there and he speaks in binary he doesn't understand anything more than ones and zeros so you, you know telephone numbers for him take a long time to dial he can't really can't get his hat his head around them i mean and he's blue it's really just incidental to the plot and i kind of like that it's this sort of throwing aside you know have it and just um throw away gags i do like throw away gags you know something very big, and then just say, no, let's not use it, let's just crush it down, and just hint at it. But we'll, we'll learn more about Ashley, I think, as time goes on in the series. One of the things you do in the Thursday Next books is you uh, have events that happen in one book that actually do get followed up in later books. Mm. Now, what I'd like to know is, when you set up the original event, do you know how it's going to play out? Uh, no. No, I don't. The the series, the Thursday Next series, the four books so far in the series, I, I, I do like connectivity in books. This is something that I do enjoy, and I don't know whether people use it a huge amount, but I, I enjoy using it. Um, and the idea that you can have a plot device that starts off in one book and like sort of vanishes for two books and then pops up again. And this this sort of does two things, I suppose. It, 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 uh, it really, um, what's the best way to describe it? It rewards attentive readers, and attentive readers like to be rewarded, I think. It's like having Easter eggs. It's like, um, uh, yeah, finding an Easter egg, something like that. I, I don't know. I just enjoy it somehow. But um, I thought um, when, I was, when I was thinking up the series and I was first starting it with The Air Affair, which was originally a standalone book, I, I knew I wanted them to all connect together, you know, very strongly. But I had no idea what was happening in the series, you know, no idea at all. So what I did is I just le left myself little um, off-ramps to actually pick up later in the series. And in fact, um, if you look through the books, if you read through the books again, you'll find all sorts of little off-ramps that I didn't use or haven't used yet. Um, there is a subplot about Winston Churchill who keeps on being killed. And he nearly did die in at least four occasions. And um, we need him, clearly. But this is one I haven't used yet. But there is uh, there are several others which, yeah, I've... I've I just sort of left myself a little open-ended street and then thought, oh, how am I going to deal with this? And then two books down the line, I go, oh, I know. 
I'll do this, and then I sort of just make something up. It's um, it's actually quite fun, really. I must say, you know, to get sort of writing myself into the into a corner and then trying to write myself out again. You know, well, it's fun for the readers to mm. experience as well as a, as a reading experience. It's really a joy, as you say. It, it rewards attentive readers. Mm. I want to talk about two aspects. Let, let's get back to this idea of the mundane fantastic. Mm. You do this a lot, where you take something in, something wild and in, in, mm. just out of space, some fan a fantasy aspect and you just bring it down to earth mm. tell me a little bit about why you like doing that and um well humans are like that aren't they i mean um <clears throat> you know a new piece of technology comes around and within six months it's we don't we don't even think about it you know i mean t- telephones now have um you know pictures and you know you take photographs with a telephone you know now a mobile phone you know, if you were to think about this, having a mobile phone 20 years ago, it's an extraordinary, extraordinary piece of technology. Now we have drawers at home full of old mobile phones that we don't use anymore. It's like Walkmans. You know, they were fantastic when they first came out. You know, pocket calculators, amazing. Now, I mean, you know, you buy them for a dollar. And and I think that's what humans do. They get, they're so readily adap- adaptable to new technology and computers, you know, fantastic technology computers. Now we just swear and curse at them. You know, even, you know, they're amazing, the things they can do. And I think that's what humans are like. They're very adaptable. They get used to things very quickly. You know, if it doesn't seem like magic, then the technology is clearly, you know, very dated. And, and I think this is the basic idea that I take. Uh, with something like um, uh, cloning extinct animals, you know, back from, back from uh, extinction, cloning animals back from extinction, my take on this was, of course, that, yes, this would be very exciting for a while, and then would become very boring and humdrum. And and we join the story when it's boring and humdrum. And I, this is a realistic, as far as I'm concerned, this is a realistic way of looking at a sort of fantastic, you know, technology. Same with time travel. You know, if we invented time travel, you know, like in the next couple of years, within 30 years, it would be boring, you know, and we'd be wanting something else. Polaroids, you remember Polaroids? They came out in a minute, you know, and you thought, ah, that's fantastic. Now when you've got a Polaroid, you're going, come on, come on, you know, and you're rubbing it and you go, come on, and it only takes a minute. So... I, I think it's that. It's that, you know, technology and wonderful ideas, they, they become ordinary. And all I'm doing is reflecting. Um, that's sort of part of the sort of human psyche, I think. I'd like to also ask you... <coughs> we, we walk around the house backwards um, to try and fool the dog that um, time has gone backwards. And it's quite good. And so we walk around the house going... Like that. And the dog's going, oh, my God, I'm traveling backwards in time. <laughs> it's quite fun, actually. We used to do, I was, When I had the clapperboard, because um, uh, I used to work in the editing room as well when I was uh, working in the film industry. And uh, uh, when, when you're syncing up a clapperboard, right, it makes a very, very distinctive sound. So I used to actually do it in reverse sometimes. And it sort of goes like this. It would go... Like that. And that's, that's how a... You know, saying 28 take 4, clack, sounds in reverse. And there you have it. <laughs> We're back with Jasper Ford <laughs> talking about his new novel, The Big Over Easy. Jasper, one of the things that's interesting about your work as well is your ability to take language and God, shoot me now. Because <laughs> my brain is just like... My... Try it backwards. Let me see here. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, Jim Henson. 
Jim Henson. Yeah. You mentioned him in mm. both Something Rotten mm. and in The Big Over Easy. Yeah. What uh, is it about Jim Henson that makes you equate him with Mozart and Einstein? Uh, what a great guy. I don't know. The, 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 Jim, the Muppet Show under Jim Henson was, I think, something very, very special. And it was all of a sudden as though, and Sesame Street as well, it was all of a sudden as though, um, you know, there was, there, were, there was human kindness and warmth that had to be spread, and he was doing it. And and I saw him being interviewed, and I just thought he was just the most perfect guy, because he 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 was genuinely sort of giving, you know, and and I think that was that was why I sort of mentioned him. I I, I, just, I always enjoyed the Muppet Show. It was just the most fantastic uh, show ever. And that's really what I sort of felt about him. That he was you know did a tr- was doing a tremendous job. I must say, tremendous job, and had his sort of heart in the right place. You know, the movies weren't terrific, but I don't think that was where he was at, really. I think Sesame Street was more him. And it just seemed so incredibly unfair that he he died as suddenly and as, you know, as as he did. Um, And I thought, well, now just mention him in the book a couple of times, you know. We live in an age where science fiction has come to dominate the movies and even the television and mm. even advertising it's permeating the world of advertising mm. and your novels do something very interesting because you use the technology of video and movie presentations within your novels as you say you talk about easter eggs you talk you say your novels are bundled with special features mm. i'd like you to talk about the feedback loop between science fiction literature and science fiction in film and in other media? Ooh, yes, tricky question. Um, I think, uh, I mean, media, media, I think the way people understand stories these days is people think in a very, um, we, we understand stories because there is a storytelling and story understanding grammar. And most people get it these days from movies and TV because they're all pervading. If we got our storytelling grammar from books alone, then I think people would be slightly different. And perhaps a lot of the gags and ideas in my books wouldn't work quite so well. And I think what I'm playing on is is people how people accept and how people understand stories. And and also I think if you if you take satirical make satirical jokes about things like, you know, special features on DVDs, um, there, there is actually a, a, a kind of uh, there is a humor there that you can you can pull out of almost any any situation um and i like the idea of putting special features in books um just like they have them on dvds and there's all kinds of sort of little you know jokes one can play but i I think what i'm doing here is is really just sort of uh feeding feeding off a a a kind of shared it's a shared experience but not only in the stories that we read but in the way we read them and we read stories in a very similar way i mean it's just like uh, i suppose like painting or art uh, and things like that. I don't truly understand uh, abstract art. You see, they they look at me and it doesn't actually say anything to me. But I have, and I, you know, and I'm, I don't understand how it how it people understand it. But I do know people who love abstract art and really get a huge amount of it. Now they clearly have a better understanding of this than I do, and it's perhaps the way they've been brought up. You know, the way that I've been brought up in sort of, you know, Western art and everything and, you know, um, more sort of figurative art, you know, that that's the sort of stuff I enjoy. But if you go to somewhere like um, uh, the sort of uh, Australian Aboriginal art, you get a completely different take on the way art is perceived 
and its understanding of it. So um, I, I think you know what I'm doing is actually just taking taking on board the way that people understand stories and just sort of playing with that, really. Um, it's 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 a fascinating thing, and you could write volumes and volumes and volumes of books about it in a very sort of um, you know for a sort of perhaps boring and academic way. Um, but I'm just demonstrating it um, within my writing. You write about it in an exciting and entertaining fashion. Mm. One of the concepts that you talk about is the story engine. Yeah, and yes. I want you to talk about that and something mm. else you told me about. Mm emotional shorthand of storytelling. Tell yeah. us a little bit about how those work and how you use them. Right. And you layer them. You use it on the most basic level. We like Jack Spratt, for mm. example, in The Big Easy. But we also like that he's a character that we underestimate and we know we're underestimating and we know the other characters are underestimating. We like him as a, a pertinence of the genre. Mm. Mm. Um so what was, the, what was the first question again? about story code engines? The story code engines, yes. Right. Okay. So uh, story code engines. Uh, what I what I was this is in a book uh, called The Well of Lost Plots. This was really trying to explain in a me mechanistic way how books are actually made, um, and how we are able to read books at all. Because if you think there are, think about it, there are actually two different types of reading. There's reading that you use to re look at road signs. You see, that's a completely different reading to the sort of reading we use when we read stories. Uh, and when we read stories, I think we're actually, um, we are kind of tapping in. The reader-writer kind of relationship is a very strange idea. You know, how, how does the imagination transfer from the the writer through to the reader? And and I was sort of having fun with this because I was saying that this is done as a sort of computer program because I was really having a sort of satirical jab at these endless upgrades we have to computers all the time. Um, and I was saying that this mechanistic way, and it's these, through these big story code engines that can, uh, you know, withstand ten thousand, you know, readings of the same book, um, and are figuring out a throughput, you know, eight words per second throughput, and all kinds of manner of nonsense like that. But it, but it is an interesting question about reading and writing, and and I think it's the closest thing to uh, to telepathy that we possess. And I guess what any uh, skilled author is doing is just is throwing up sort of like mnemonic markers uh, in people's heads to actually you know bring forward a sort of emotional response and yeah I mean what you say about sort of emotional flags yeah I mean I think we are far more similar to one another than we perhaps realize and we have these shared human experiences of, and shared emotional experiences certainly about happiness and sadness and love and pity and shame and anger and all that sort of stuff and and I think uh, you know a skilled author will actually be able to manipulate uh, that quite quite considerably, and that's why I think it's the closest thing to to telepathy we, we have, which is uh, which is very strange, isn't it? Because they're just text, just words on a on a page, which is very odd, I must say. I think um the the the, the closest thing to reading we have that isn't reading is is radio and the spoken word, uh, because then you're just listening to the words, but then of course you have the sort of added uh, bonus of hearing the emotion through the speaker. Yeah, radio is like sort of um, reading plus, I think. But it, it is a very strange, very strange sort of transference of, uh, of imagination from one to the other. I mean, if, you know, if I say now, I say, <coughs> um, OK, imagine if you can a castle floating in the air at dusk above a, above a uh, calm sea, you know, with crows sort of cawing around the, around the turrets. And you can make that picture in your head. Now, that's an astonishing thing to be able to do. Um, and of course, I'm not doing anything at all. That was neither a good description nor a very long one. But you've got it in your head, and and that's what I mean by uh, when I say something like um, 
you do most of the work. The reader does most of their work. And there's a little line in World of Lost Plots that I quite like, is that um, uh, when an, a reader... Um, when a reader, you know, um, says, when a reader says that a, um, hang on, I'm just trying to say this right from the, the book. Uh, when a reader congratulates a writer, they should actually reserve some of the congratulations for themselves because they've done much of the work. And I think that's true, really. There's a new form of technology that's just come out. It's called RPVS and what this stands for is rather than looking at a text electronically displayed on a screen, all the words at once, mm. what this does is flash one word at you at a time. Mm. So it just streams at you. I'm wondering what you'd think about this kind of reading and how this might affect the reading experience. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, the, the, the cynic in me says it sounds like complete load of nonsense, really. I'm, I'm sure I'll be totally proved wrong. Um, the interesting thing about books and uh, especially when you are reading is of course you do not read each individual word um in in neither you do you read the whole sentence you actually look at shapes of sentences uh one thing i found found out um when i was writing was that um you can actually if you if you have a, f a fact in a sentence that you want to get across to a reader you really want to put it early on in in the sentence because people read the beginning of the sentence you don't want to have it on the right hand side of the page in the middle of a block of text, because that's where it gets lost. Um, there is actually a way that people read text on a page, and very fast readers actually can scan past really important facts, and you can and you can lose them. So it's it's kind of, that's why it's you use dialogue if you want to get really a very strong, solid fact across. You use dialogue because people read dialogue, especially if it's like dialogue that's like five or six words long. People always read that. But if you if you want to get something across, don't hide it in a big paragraph of um, description or exposition because it'll probably be lost. In the same way as you're talking about this PBS, whatever, um, that it sounds very strange because you when you when you read a book, you kind of look at the the shape of the words and the sentences and how they're laid out on the book, and that, I think that that's almost of sort of equal importance. When you write, do you actually pay attention to the the way it looks on your word processor? Because you can't really predict how it's going to look in the book. Yeah, I, I roughly do. I set out my word processor so that um, it's roughly the same size as the printed page when it when it comes out, and in that way, I can actually have a good idea of what what it looks like. And and it's important. And it's often, um, you know, if dialogue crosses from one page to the next at the wrong place, um, I will say to the copy editors, "Listen, we have to keep this on the same." page especially because if it's a payoff of a gag right you can't have you can't have the setup on one page and then the following at the top of the next page is the you know the payoff of the, it doesn't it doesn't work often things will not work if they are on the next page so I, I will actually say to them you know put a line break here and it is quite it's important you know it is important how things are laid out on the page i want to talk to you a little bit about the political implications and something rotten mm. it seems like a much more political book than your previous works yes. you've done a lot of satire and, and jokes about popular culture but you seem to be going after something a little bit more substantial and something rotten yeah uh tell us a little bit about the faith-based corporation goliath yeah well this is the goliath corporation which i i do have i do love i must say um the thing about the goliath corporation is they have absolutely no shame in what they do for, for a corporation they're extraordinary because they'll just lie blatantly through their teeth and really don't care what anyone says and and I think that that's you know entirely commendable for them. I think the bigger joke is that that 
people don't seem to complain. They are sort of very much an exaggerated corporation. I was trying to find a way of making them worse. And the sort of cynic in me really said that, um, okay, well, the Goliath Corporation should actually be trying to manipulate people even more. So they, they, they decided to change themselves into a faith-based uh, uh, corporate management system, which basically means they, they're becoming a religion. And instead of you um, being paid, you know, with, with cash, you'd actually be paid with sort of, you know, faith coupons or foupons, as they're called, um, which, you know, can you can exchange at, um, you know, various sort of Goliath outlets um, for goods and services, um, which was just a sort of huge way of pulling pulling the wool over the population's eyes, um, you know, and allowing them to make even more money. Um, it was just trying to make them worse, really, and even more cynical. So uh, hard as though it seemed to be, I think I managed it. Were you talking a little bit about some of the more faith-based initiatives we've seen in America? I mean, was that what uh, you were playing for? Not really. Um, no, no, not not particularly. Um, I think, you know, faith is a sort of a bizarre thing, really. Um, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a, a terrible cynic at heart, so I t- tend to look at all this as, you know, with a rather jaundiced eye. Um, it, it's, it, is, it, is a, it is a sort of strange thing, and I think I was just sort of poking fun of it. I, I, I poke fun at religion quite a lot in the... Uh, in the books, um, you know, with the um, uh, I have the GSD, the Global Standard Diety, which I think was you know a fantastically good idea. Really, is just to take all the religions and make them into one, and then you know there'll be no arguments, huh? You know, but uh, I think there is a lot of a lot of fun to be had certainly at um, without being specific as to religions. Um, that the organised religion does to me strike a bit. Uh, you know, when someone sets himself up as a leader to boss other people around in whatever uh, system. It is, whether it's either governmental or um, religion or just, you know, in the office. Uh, it just strikes me as just a bit, um, a bit. Uh, I think, ripe for, uh, ripe for um, comment and satire. I wanted to ask you also about Hamlet. Mm. Taking on one of Shakespeare's most famous plays mm. and taking the main character and bringing him into your book was a pretty daring move on your part didn't you Mm. feel a little bit or a lot of trepidation in doing so uh yes i mean if i'd done it seriously um then perhaps it would have i i take uh, my hamlet is hamlet light really um he's um he's an the character you know shakespeare's character hamlet is an immensely complicated um character um who i obviously couldn't couldn't you know really do justice to in in my book so i just took one or two aspects of him and the most popular aspects that people generally know about hamlet is he's a guy who talks a lot and can't make up his mind and and i took that as my basis and then i and then i played with them with those those particular issues and put him in the real world you know like you know in starbucks you know where choice is everything and of course you know to hamlet choice is 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 a a huge problem he's all talk and no action you know, which means he's the opposite of Chuck Norris, really, who is all sort of action and no thought, I suppose. Um, uh, and I and I think that was the part of it that I was actually, you know, playing with. But um, he's an immensely more character, <laughs> immensely more complicated character than than I think perhaps I, uh, I I give him credit for. But I like him; he's a nice guy. When you do this, when you take these characters from literature, how much backstory and how much research oh. are we seeing? The tip of the iceberg, or are we seeing the entire mountain? Um. I, I think the the important thing about that I feel very strongly within my books when I do uh, attack in a sort of reverently uh, irreverent way these characters that I do actually have to know them to you know misunderstand them on a on a deeper level 
Um, and I think you know when I'm when I'm am playing with someone like Hamlet, it it is important to get a good, a very good and clear idea about what the character is before I actually start maligning them. Um, the same with Wuthering Heights, you know, or Jane Eyre is it's important because people who really know uh, Wuthering Heights, you know, will be reading my book, and I don't want to appear to be a phony. Uh, when they read the book so so you know fans of Wuthering Heights will read Well of Lost Plots and and there's a sequence where they're all discussing you know their rage in this rage counseling session and and all the characters are pretty pretty much you know fair assimilations of the characters in the book and that's important to me you know I, I want the books to be understood on on several levels and and people who really understand the uh, the um the characters um I, I want them to really appreciate the jokes as well could you tell us a little bit about your research staff and your mm. just your research databases and, and how you work that and, and you you work with some some you have some help don't you? Well, my my girlfriend helps uh, a lot with research. I uh, I say things to her like um, I, you know obviously I don't want her to research things too much that don't need researching. So I I'll say something like you know get I need I need a page on a subject of whatever Austin Allegro's or whatever. Or, actually no that was a bit more really. I need about four pages on Austin Allegro's and I need to know uh, for instance if there are any recalls because of mechanical problems. You know it's it's this sort of question. And she goes away and you know she comes back with four pages and I read through it and I you know highlight things that I need. Um when I when I'm researching characters and I I read the book uh, read the books. Um, Wuthering Heights. I reread the book, and then I uh, had a look at a lot of a lot of critical um, essays of it. The great thing about um, you know Penguin Classics, for instance, is they have very good um, forewords and afterwards, uh, which go into some considerable detail about the book itself, which uh, which helps a huge amount to know how it was accepted at the time and you know how it's accepted now, and and also just uh, and my own take on it as well. That's very important as well. I mean, when I was reading Wuthering Heights, I knew I had to do something with it, but I didn't know where the where the joke came from. Um, I found that it was written in seven first-person narratives, which I, I could clearly use at some point in the story. But um, I, I couldn't figure it out for a long time, wh what I w was going to use in Wuthering Heights. And then, of course, it struck me, you know, there's a lot of this sort of rage, you know, underneath the surface, and everyone hates Heathcliff, you know, he's a horrible human being, apart from Kathy, of course. Um, and I thought, right, let's make that into the uh, the gag, take this sort of 90s psycho babble, you know, circle of trust, sit down, talk about our rage, you know, as we meant to do in the 90s. And put all the characters there, and it and the scene happened, and it worked really well. I was very pleased with it. When we talk about the reading experience, we normally talk about reading words that we see right on the page. With your novels, I get the feeling that you could do a web-based version of your novel where practically every other word mm. would be a hyperlink. Mm. Yeah, there is. We we actually um. For a bit of fun, I think for the air affair, we actually have on the on the website there is the first five pages, which are which is an annotated uh, version, uh, and in and in fact, you know, there is some little references, and you can click a highlighted word, and it comes up with a, another reference, uh, and explains why I use that particular you know date or personal name or whatever. Uh, but then I was finding that um, once I was in the, this little pop up box that you get, you there was actually more to tell and in fact some of those pop-up boxes have secondary pop-up boxes after them because everything you know leads on to something else it's just like a huge network of ideas and connections and everything else um great fun but you're right yes it could be take a lot of time and um, obviously let's talk about the movies a little bit hmm. uh, i understand that that people have been after you to sell the rights to the Thursday Next books. Have you done that? No, no, not at all. Um, the, the, my agents don't even tell me now when they've refused 
Um, I, I, I say, listen, um, as far as I'm concerned, you know, I'd rather it wasn't made than it was made badly. Or um, if I don't make it, it doesn't get made. And of course, that puts everybody off. No, I mean, it's not necessary. I mean, ma many producers out there will, of course, regard books as nothing more than, you know, material to be primary source material to be used and in, made into movies. But I don't see it that way. The Thursday Next series is uh, would be very difficult to make into, I think, a good movie. It's probably not a movie. I think each Thursday Next book would be four one hours of high-quality TV. That's the right format, you know. Um, a lot of people say, oh, but you want to be movies because of the glamour and all the glitziness and, you know, and flash guns and red carpets. And you go, well, you know, if it's not right for the source material, then, you know, bollocks to it all. Oops, can't say that on radio. Um if oh, in America, you yeah, can. Can I? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, if it, if it's not right for the if it's not right for the material, then you know it's not worth it's not worth doing. So um, so no, I haven't sold it at all. But uh, my my agents do know that I say, listen, if somebody serious comes and talks, you know, with a track record and a name you recognise, then um, you know we'll talk because I'd be sort of vaguely interested. Um, but um, it's like having a good editor. You know, if the editor um, understands the spirit of the piece, then you trust them. Right. And any filmmaker, if they understood the spirit of my work, then and I could trust them, then maybe I could talk. But at the moment, I don't see it. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the relationship of your books to the world of film. You have film mm. stars. Mm. Um, you refer a lot to the media. Mm. I wonder if you could, again, discuss for us this feedback loop that happens between literature mm. and other types of fiction. Um, yeah, I think this goes back to um, sort of what I was saying, I guess, about um, movie-making grammar is a sort of storytelling grammar that we understand really well. Um, I, I think also a lot of my, uh, there are sort of little aspects of my book that feed into a popular culture, which is part of our shared, um, shared uh, you know, um, emotional experience, you know, that I was talking about. It's, it's not just, you know, who's read Jane Eyre to find Jane Eyre funny. It's, it's a lot of it is like the movies you've seen and the TV you've seen. So there's a lot, there's a big, big shared experience there that I can tap into. And one of these is, is movie making, of course. And, you know, and I was, I was, you know, initially a big fan of the Star Wars um, series, less so now. In fact, I saw the last one. I was sitting in this, sitting in this, you know, sitting in the cinema, sort of wondering quite what I was doing there. Uh, which is a shame, really. I think uh, fantastic missed opportunity to do something just wonderful and you know tremendous. Uh, but um, the 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 first Star Wars, I I enjoyed a great deal, and I thought yes, I, I could put little sort of pastiches in here of Star Wars that would just sort of fire off people, little fire off these little you know mnemonic fags in people's heads, and they'd go, oh yeah, I know this is quite funny. So I think there's a situation in um, either in Lost in a Good Book or or something rotten which is very similar to the scene in the cantina in the first Star Wars where somebody says I have the death sentence in seven genres which I kind of like I think that's a nice sort of silly silly gag really you know and a nod towards um, that, um, those first uh, three films well, I'm wondering if you think one of the reasons that we're seeing such an explosion of science fiction fantasy and speculative fiction in film do you think there's something about the genre itself that lends itself to the storytelling methods found in film? Um, no, I don't know. I mean, I think uh, I think people see it. Maybe, there's, there are many people who see more movies than they read books. It's much easier to see a film than it is to read a book. Um, you can get so many more ideas across much, much quicker than you can um, with a book. 
than a, uh, in a film than you can with a book because um, it's you know it's very much sort of you know visual and it's I think it's actually a sort of lazy shorthand if, if you like it's a sort of lazy way of, of getting a getting a story across um, it's it, you have to work harder with a book I, I, d I don't know why we're seeing a sort of you know explosion of different ideas but um, movies have always been very experimental in fact probably more so than than books um, because uh, producers are looking for some new angle that they can exploit in something that's new and different and exciting and you know with the the advent of CGI um, computer imaging you know there's um there's, there's, there's a huge potential there for making movies now that we could never make in the past and and people are you know people are really doing some cutting-edge stuff whether whether that's actually a good thing I'm not really sure because of course you know you can have the best sort of you know, whoop de doo effects, but if the stories and characters and, you know, drama don't really match up, then it's a bit of a sort of hollow experience, really, sort of style over content. Could you talk a little bit about the future of written fiction and written genre fiction? Where do you think you fit in? You said that you don't see yourself as uh, science fiction. Mm. What do you see your work as, and where do you see it going in the future and fitting mm. into this umbrellas of say speculative fiction in the future uh i i've no idea really um I, I i i write books that i find um amusing to to write um i'm delighted that people um, get enjoyment from them i i have no idea really where i fit into the the whole great big you know umbrella i i i tend to i tend to write books on a desert island i must say i i don't tend to see look at what contemporary writers are doing i i really don't i mean it's um it's not that it has no interest for me. Um, I just like writing stories, and that tends to be what I do. So I don't look around to see what other people are doing. Um, maybe I should. I don't know. But I, I do tend to write books just as though I'm the only writer um, and just sort of get on with it and do what I think is amusing. Um, so the future of writing, I've just no idea. If people keep reading it, I guess, yeah, it might. I think my writing has, has, has evolved certainly from the air affair um it's it's become i think sort of a bit more complicated um but where it's going uh, i've no idea no idea at all well next up i guess we can look forward to the story of the fourth bear yes the fourth bear this is the second in the the jack spratt series um yes which is really retelling or, or perhaps re-examining the that strange story about the three bears and goldilocks um you know she trashes their house and is then found dead at somworld the first world war theme park next door and the, the bears were the last people to see her alive. Um, you know, it's there are all sorts of questions that you, you have to ask around the three bears story, like why was Mummy Bear and Daddy Bear sleeping in separate beds? Um, that's obviously the first thing that Jack Spratt would notice uh, when he goes into their house. Um, to me, this obviously, you know, hints towards marital disharmony within the bear family. And you have to ask the question, well, why? And does this relate in some way to Goldilocks' uh, disappearance? Well, that sounds very interesting. Mm. We've, been <laughs> <laughs> We've been speaking with Jasper Ford. His new novel is The Big Over Easy. Thank you for joining us, Jasper. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom slash agony.